Welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast as we get ready for the first Grand Slam of the year, the Australian Open. And around this time last year, I was talking about the Melbourne heat. I was definitely complaining about jet lag, all the while looking out over the beautiful Rod Laver Arena. Today, I'm looking out over my kitchen in the UK. It's warm inside. It is very cold outside. And this is for two reasons. The first is that for 2021, the Australian Open has moved to an early February start. And secondly, due to the ongoing pandemic, I for one will be covering the tournament remotely, not from my kitchen, but here in the UK. So I'm very happy to say on this week's podcast, I have two friends and colleagues who are going to be there witnessing the actions. We try and break things down for you and we go through our time capsule. So I'm Gigi Salmon, based in the UK. We've got Brian Clark in America. We've got Chris Bowers currently in the UK, but shortly to leave to start his journey to Australia. And we've got Peter Mercato in Melbourne, Australia. Peter, this is a big moment for Australia because they're about to open the borders to the tennis community. Yes, well, I'm still trying to work on Chris's one, so hopefully, you know, immigration <laughs> will do the right thing and let him in. But yes, it's going to be really interesting. It's it, the the heavy lockdowns and everything that we've had, particularly in Melbourne and the Greater Melbourne area, for for parts of of last year, were very very strict. So everyone is uh, taking a keen interest in everyone coming down. The players, not just the players, but obviously the officials, commentators, everyone, the hangers on. There's one of those that can come with each player as well. So, yeah, the three hotels, they're going to be quarantining for the 14 days. We have fingers, toes, everything crossed that this runs smoothly. It's going to be something completely different. And Gigi, you mentioned last year that we were sitting at Melbourne Park with Chris. I think we were doing the time capsule there. And we had smoke in the air and we had bushfires if you remember, and uh, the smoke was going to cause problems. Well, hasn't the world changed since then? And hopefully once we get to February, everything will be okay and we'll be able to run this smoothly. Now, Chris, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. Give us your timeline because you don't actually have very much time before you have to leave. And how long are you going to be away for and what does it involve? Yeah, it's a a remarkable thing. I mean, what Peter says is absolutely right. The Australians have been through really severe lockdown. They've actually got the virus under control to a large extent. But it means that those of us who are coming in really are incredibly privileged. There are a lot of people in Australia who don't feel the tennis world should come in. And therefore, those of us coming in have really got to jump through an awful lot of hoops. I had to make a travel declaration no less than 72 hours before departing, then no more than 72 hours before departing. I had to take a COVID test, had to send that through, had to sign a consent form that when I go into quarantine, anything that is delivered to me will be inspected. And then when I arrive in Melbourne, I will be whisked away to one of the three hotels that Peter mentioned. And I will not be allowed out of my four walls for 14 days. And uh, if that sounds quite draconian, well, I'm choosing to go. I didn't have to go. I know it's my job. Um, I had to do a lot of thinking about it because, uh, you know, it it is a more daunting trip to Australia than the normal. And I don't fancy uh, spending 14 days in four walls. But I think it's uh, we're incredibly privileged to have that opportunity. And so I have said, yeah, let's do it. And hopefully by the end, I will have the, the, the reward of being able to have uh, 
Uh, well, I have a week before the Australian Open starts when I come out of quarantine. And then there's the fortnight of the Australian Open itself. And just to remind everyone that you run AO Radio. So while, yes, you could have done it remotely, it is much better for you that you're actually going to be on site at Melbourne Park. Yes. I mean, one can do commentary remotely, but given that the whole team is local, I just decided that if I was not going to be there, I would have to hand over the running to someone else. I could be on the end of a, of a phone line or whatever. But ultimately, I just felt that either I have to be there and do the job properly or um, I hand it over completely and just maybe throw in the odd bit of advice. And yeah, I, I've, I've chosen to go. It will be. We normally have a, a team of pretty much 50-50 Aussie, non-Aussie. We're going to have a lot more Aussies this year, but um, we still have got some uh, international voices. Uh, there'll be a few new ones, but it'll be, uh, by and large, the familiar voices who've uh, been on AO Radio and rebroadcast on ATP Tennis Radio uh, over the last few years. So the thought of AO Radio being in the hands of Peter McCarter was so terrifying that you will stay in a hotel room for two weeks and you will not leave. <laughs> You've rumbled me. You've rumbled me. I just thought about it and I thought, oh no, I don't, I don't want to spend but, but actually 14 days in my four walls or Peter McCarter running AO Radio. I've got to go. I've got to go. Now, one of the international voices we won't be hearing on AO Radio is is Brian Clark. Now, Brian, I know you've been... Was it, were you on your honeymoon the last time you were in Australia or have I, or have I made that up? No, that's correct. That was two years ago, 2019, which feels like five years ago, <laughs> of course. And how are things, let me start with, how are things in America? Politically, you are not out of the news at the moment, but in terms of the pandemic and how you're living your life, how are things over there? Well, the pandemic is actually worse than it's ever been in terms of some of the numbers. It's just that it's been shunted to the back pages by all of the other craziness going on in this country right now. So yeah, pretty tense times here in the U.S. But how we're living, at least here in New York, you know, April, March, May of, of last year were, were really harrowing. And then once everybody figured out how things would go, you've adjusted to this new normal. Um, so it's cold. You're not wanting to go outside much. There are outdoor restaurants and bars with heaters doing their best. So try to get to those when you can. But yeah, it's. I'd much rather be in Australia. I'd much rather be in Australia in a uh, normal time. I think we all would. But we're getting by. I guess that's the best you can say right now. Because between the three of us, and, and Peter will soon go through this, we've experienced a grand slam during a pandemic because Chris and I were at Roland Garrison. And, and Brian, you started things off in terms of the US Open was the first slam to happen during the pandemic. How did you find the restrictions, everything you had to go through? Did it change your experience of the tournament? And, and just how was that experience? It was bizarre. It was surreal, all of those things. Just because you guys know these Grand Slams, so much of what's instrumental in making them work is the atmosphere and the fans. And to have no fans there, uh, Labor Day weekend, where you'd, you know, over the course of the day, there'd be 50,000 people at the National Tennis Center and there are no fans. It's like the tumbleweeds blowing through in the old movies. That part's surreal. Um, on the women's side of things, a Serena Williams semifinal. I'm sitting up in Ash Stadium watching it. I wasn't commentating the match. And she rolls her ankle late in the match before she lost to Victoria Azarenka. And it's it's like what like there's no reaction. It's everybody the hundred or so people who were in the stadium watching were like, oh no, Serena's hurt, but there's not that collective gasp. And then when Victoria Azarenka outslugs her and wins this match, there's no roar, there's no dejection. It's just Silence, and you hear a few scattered rounds of applause from her box courtside. Um, it, it was surreal. 
I would say, though, I think it might compare more to what you guys are going to experience in Australia than what Roland Garros was like in that they were able to get Cincinnati and the Western and Southern Open. That tournament played on site at the U.S. Open uh, prior to the U.S. Open proper. So what Melbourne's doing in terms of the ATP Cup and some of the other events that are going on around the city, that might compare a little bit more to just how once you get that bubble going, it starts to run itself. So one of the things that strikes me about the the French Open, and I think this is actually quite important for us as radio commentators, at the French, there was at least some spectators. There were They allowed a thousand in a day. And there's talk of maybe 25% at the Australian Open. I mean, that could change between now and the start of the tournament because uh, it depends a little bit on, on how various um, security and safety measures go. But one of the things that struck me, and maybe this was partly because of the amount of building work that went on at Roland Garros, it struck me as a massive dress rehearsal. And it was, uh, I, I used to say to a couple of friends, I said, I feel like I've been in a dress rehearsal and then come home to find it was the real thing after all. It's incredible that tennis, a global sport, has actually got itself to the stage it has with all the tournaments. And and Peter, two things. I felt really so my heart went out to you because you normally would have come over for Roland Garros, stayed through the summer. You were planning on coming back later in the year. You just had to sit in this strict lockdown and watch it all unfold. So firstly, your thoughts on what you were seeing. And secondly, run us through a little bit on what's going to be happening at Melbourne Park in and around the Australian Open. Well, Gigi, I like to say that I was on long service leave for all of uh, 2020. <laughs> I feel like I've earned it, 10 years of, of travelling over your way and broadcasting and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it was interesting to see. It was hard because uh, the, normally, you know, the early stages when there was no tennis, everyone was missing out. And then once we got to the stage where you were seeing what was going on in, in Paris and obviously New York with you, Brian, and, and um, then towards the back end of the season, it felt like you were a long way away from the action. And obviously time zones didn't really help that too. So, yes, I did watch and listen as much as I could, but uh, sleep was uh, a precious commodity as well along the way. So, yeah, you sort of start to lose the threads a little bit of, of what was going on, the tournaments and, and things like that. But it was such a, a crazy season. Uh, you know, the, the the fact that hopefully we get to some sort of normality, even towards the back end of 2021, would be uh, perfect. would be really a good result all around, considering how global the sport is. In terms of what we're going to be doing crowd-wise here in Melbourne, so the crowd, yes, it is about 25%. They're hoping to maybe... If things stay as they are, get a few more people coming in uh, for that. But they, they, it's health advice that they're going to have. They're split into three zones so around the three roof stadiums, which is great news because it means that you can kind of pick and choose what tournament you actually want to see, really. So there's the new John Kane Arena, which is the old Melbourne Arena, which was the old Vodafone Arena, which was the old multi-purpose venue. So that's been given a, a new title for 2021. So you're in the know. If you, if you see that John Kane Arena, former Premier of Victoria, was the one who got the tournament to Melbourne Park in the first place. Now you're up to date. You get that, practice courts, and then two of the outside courts. Then there's the Rod Laver Arena zone, which is right in the middle, which is... Uh, Basically, Rod Laver Arena and Grand Slam Oval and, and all the dining and the, you know, the beer tent and all that sort of stuff. And then there's Margaret Court Arena, which I reckon in the first week is actually going to be the best value because you get Margaret Court Arena and then you get all the outside courts on the western side. And there are a lot of outside courts. There's going to be a lot of tournament play in that first week. So you have to stick in those zones. So everyone is ticketed. You cannot move between zones. So that's a way of if there is an outbreak, which we hope there isn't, that uh, you'll then be able to actually um, 
isolate those people in that particular zone rather than the whole of Melbourne Park on that particular day. Um, there'll be some separation um, players to spectators. We've been told that you know we shouldn't be you know, hanging out in Garden Square uh, once play finishes for the day that you should probably get out of there. Uh, and obviously there's tracking and contact tracing as well. So the ability of a QR code, um, you scan in, you have to scan at various points around the grounds just to make sure that everyone's got the right details and everything like that. So it is fairly strict in terms of how that's going to work. And, and of course, we, we don't have as many events that are going to be running uh, either during the Australian Open. So I know the Legends events uh, among others, the junior events, not necessarily going to be run on site. So, you know, those sort of things, uh, there are going to be some changes there. But the main thing is if we can get the tournament away, I think it'll be a great result, not just for tennis globally, but tennis locally as well. Because as we know with, with Roland Garros, with the US Open, provides so much income for tennis at the lower levels too. So it'd be a disaster if it doesn't run. And Chris, as Brian mentioned with Cincinnati coming into the US Open bubble, there are a series of men's and women's events before and after the Australian Open within this bubble. So people can come, they can acclimatise, they can make money, they can play matches, and then we have the Australian Open. Yeah, it's a condensed season. There's basically three men's tournaments in the run-up to um, the Australian Open. There's two regular ATP events, both played concurrently on the same venue, um, but they're separate tournaments. And then there's the ATP Cup as well, which is a smaller version of the um, inaugural ATP Cup that we had last year. So that will exist, but it's much smaller. Um, and I think uh, everything goes back to the fact that the state government of Victoria said we cannot have the tennis community arriving until January because of the two weeks quarantine. There then had to be enough time to get players with the chance to play a week's worth of tournaments before the Australian Open. So it is the Australian Open season condensed into three weeks, but all in one venue. And I think we have to remember that. And it's going to be quite difficult to report. You know, Those of us who speak in, in terms of tournaments as cities, we can't do that in the week before the Australian Open. We're going to have to be talking about, I mean, some people may talk about Melbourne 1 and Melbourne 2, where we had Cologne 1 and Cologne 2, but at least they were successive weeks. Um, I don't know, Peter, have we got names of those tournaments? We do have names. They're all basically parts of Australia. So I think there's the Murray River Open is one, the Great Ocean Road Open for another, those sort of things. They've been given particular place names uh, around Victoria. You talk about reporting it. Try commentating across all of these events, both men's and women's. We should point out that there are multiple women's events, uh, 500, WTA 500 events being held at the same time too. And those of us who are doing the, the world feed or commentary across the world, uh, aside from the ATP Cup, are actually going to be commentating across all of them. Peter, I want no complaining. We've just talked about you've had your little sabbatical and you didn't come over and that was a nice break. So we need you to be busy now over this Australian summer. I'll do, but well, yes, I'm ready to be busy now. Like, if you've got anything for me to do, G, just send over some paperwork or something. More than happy. Well, no, time capsule very soon. That's going to keep you busy. Let me just say one more thing about what you guys can expect. And it's something that caught me off guard. Peter, you made a, a passing comment about how there's there's no juniors this year. And that was one of the biggest adjustments at the U.S. Open because we all know what the first few days of the tournament are like where there's matches on every court, there's people everywhere. But then as the tournament goes on and the draw gets whittled down, there are fewer and fewer players. So usually over the second week, you're used to seeing people, but you don't necessarily, they're not 
known name players, but they're juniors. But just not seeing anybody, that was really weird and something I didn't really expect in the second week of the U.S. Open. The only thing I'll say to that, though, Brian, without the juniors there in place, they actually there is a WTA event that's going to be run at Melbourne Park in the second week of the Australian Open, and so they needed to clear some court space. Not not that's not why they, the juniors aren't happening, but there will be on that western side there will be um, a WTA event happening at the same time. So spread out across a couple of courts across the grounds there too. But you know, with all the density capacities and that sort of thing too, it just made sense to try and funnel everyone, I guess, into more of the, the Rod Laver Arena precinct. Um, normally the, the John Kane Arena precinct, if you're familiar with the site, gets closed down by the, the second Monday anyway. So everyone's more condensed and moved over to the western side of the grounds. But yeah, there's one there and then there's another WTA event in Adelaide happening the week after the Australian Open too. So taking advantage of the fact that the players will be quarantined. So once you've done the 14 days of quarantine, the, the players and officials and Chris will be treated like any other Victorian in that you can move around freely because you've completed that. The testing for the players is pretty much every day because they have to move between certain training venues, so they won't be able to mix and match there. They've been assigned a, a training venue. Um, but uh, for commentators like Chris, it'll be, I think, the usual three times uh, across the time here, and you need the negative test coming in. Clear all of that, and then you're one of us. And Brian, I'm wondering, I don't know how this works with the time difference. I'm so bad at time differences from Doha to New York. But that's where the men's qualifying women have been in Dubai. It's it's just look, I know it's got the, the Tennis Australia branding. I know it's Australian Open qualifying, but it is just looks so different. There's no ball boys. I've, I've been worried about players who are about to step back and land on about four tennis balls. It just, it's felt really, really, it's, it's just weird to think that Australian Open qualifying has been taking place in the Middle East. It's strange, and it's also a reminder that as much as everybody was talking around New Year's, like, let's put 2020 behind us, the worst year ever, we can't wait to move on. It's January, and it feels a lot like it did in 2020. That's just the world we're in right now. And you do wonder, we talk about it a lot in commentary, how much of these changes, like the robot line umpires, are going to be permanent throughout tennis uh, moving forward. But it's just the world we're in right now, and hopefully we get back to a, a semblance of normalcy sooner rather than later. One of the other differences that's going to be there, one of the things that the, the organisers have had to think about are the ball kids and, and what happens there because the school year starts. Normally the Australian Open happens and then the kids go back to school straight after that. So they've missed a lot of school. There's a lot of talk about, you know, will they be able to attend and all of that is underway and it's all going to be in place. But you might have, well, you will have some of those ball kids who have signed up who will miss another couple of weeks of school because the school year will will be well underway by then. A lot of people will be back at work or working from home or that sort of thing. So that's going to have a, a little bit of an impact too and, and a different sort of feel to what you would normally get in January. They should take the page from the US Open where the second, if you watch old US Open matches, you'll recognize, I'm not going to say ball kids because they are ball grown <laughs> men and women. Uh, some of the, the labor laws, when, when kids go back to school, they're not allowed to be working at night. So these night sessions, you have adults who are doing it. So maybe you guys have to uh, go with that route. Something that is exactly the same as last year, 2020, is the time capsule. The ATP Tennis Radio time capsule. And the other thing that stays the same is that Arvin Palmer just keeps winning it. He has conveniently lost Rudy the trophy who people who are new to ATP Tennis Radio is this gold cherub that is wearing a nappy and sunglasses. Um, he's told our producer Russell that 
He thinks he knows where it is. I'm, I'm convinced he's just lost it. And Peter, you've been waving around the smallest box in the history of, of boxes that is the time capsule. Yeah, well, the, you know, we, we have to, I have to transport this over, well, I didn't last year, but transport this over your way, <laughs> so I need it to fit in my suitcase. I haven't seen yours and Chris's predictions. You've kind of kept those close to your chest. I have seen Brian's. We're going to run through the categories. We're going to pick out a few that people have gone for. I'm going to find out who you have gone for. So if, if we get stuck into this and what we will do at the Tour Finals in Turin, that box will somehow be opened if Peter can come over, firstly, and secondly, remembers the box. And then probably Arv will win it again. So I'm not quite sure why we're doing this because he just keeps winning. But we start with year-end number one singles. And I'm just going to say, have, have any of you not gone for Novak Djokovic? I've gone for Dominic Team. Um, I actually think that it's possible team may go the whole year without winning a slam, but I believe he'll be the most consistent player. I just got sense in the second half of last year that Djokovic was just getting that, the, the, the beginnings of another, how much do I really want to do this um, phase? And I suspect that Djokovic will be uh, the best in the world for isolated weeks of the year but I'm not sure that he's going to actually put the body of work together. We forget that the rankings are about consistency. And if, um, yes, you get a lot of points by winning a, a major, but I suspect that team is going to be the most consistent player over the year. And although I have got him down to win one slam, I think he will finish the year at number one. Brian, is there a danger, and I've gone for Novak Djokovic, that once he, well, he's expected to pass Federer's all-time record of 310 weeks at number one, what, 8th of March. Is there a danger that once he gets that, there will be a sudden release? And not that it won't matter, but it won't matter as much. Well, if he's gotten this far, let's. why <laughs> wouldn't he go a little bit further? You know, like, what, why not a few more weeks? Why not go for 20, 21 majors, which I, I would certainly tip him to do at this point. I agree with what Chris is saying. I, I didn't have the guts to not pick him. But I think, Chris, your logic is pretty sound. Like, you, you make a, a good point for why you would go with team. Team has been the model of consistency for how many years now? Three or four. And you saw last year it paid off with the major title. And now maybe it does pay off with that number one ranking. Tell you, Brian, that this is a problem. This was the problem in the quiz, Brian. You know, just you, you didn't go with the, the first instinct. You just settled. Into, we lost. It's funny, looking through the, the capsule predictions, we'll do this throughout the episode, there were two or three. This wasn't one of them, actually. Like, I like Chris's idea, but I, I still think it's going to be Djokovic. There were two or three, though, throughout this show that people made these choices, and I thought, I wish I had the guts to do that. Uh, I'll get to those later on. <laughs> I can tell you that AO Radio Steve Pierce has gone for Nadal to be year-end number one. And let me ask you about Roger Federer. We have no return date for Federer, but is it time, Chris, we stopped considering him for this category? Uh, yes, I think uh, he's never going to get to number one in the world again. I think there is still an outside chance, because he is Roger Federer, that he could win a major. Um, but um, I think... Look, we've got to get used to the idea that Federer is not going to be around. Um People will say, oh, it's what a shame that Federer is not at the Australian Open. We need to get used to that. Um, we need to view Federer's appearances as a bonus. And because he is Federer and because he will manage his schedule incredibly carefully, um, I think he will be a factor when he turns up. But he will not play enough tournaments to, be, to make world number one at any stage of the year. Definitely not the end of the year. 
And can I just say you weren't alone with team. Marcus Buckland's gone for team year end number one. Colin Fleming, Nick Lester, Naomi Cavaday. So there's there's a few, that, that's the only other name though. There is no other well apart from Steve Pierce's Nadal. They are the only three names for that year end number one. Year end number one doubles team. I always feel like this is a bit of a kind of you look at the pairings and you close your eyes and you get a pin and you stick it in and Brian one pops out. I went with the new team of Pavic and Metkic. They've already won a title. Uh, they're just working together. And yeah, on with that. That's my analysis of my pick for the doubles year end number one. No, and no disrespect to any of the doubles teams, but that's how I came to work that out. Can I say, I think it's easier in an Olympic year, which although this shouldn't have been, it will be an Olympic year because you get players playing from the same nationality and i think that makes it easier they're going to stick together basically until august even if they're falling out with each other and can't stand the sight of each other they will stick with each other i've gone for mektic and pavic as well um i'd have gone for them i suspect anyway because i think that they're both they've quietly worked up to an incredible level i think they complement each other extremely well but uh, i just find this an easier job in an olympic year Although, you know, you've got people like, say, um, Bruno Suarez and Jamie Murray who are back together. And if they have a good year, then they could easily be number one. Peter, are you? Are, you, are there four of us going for the same doubles team here? We are. I know this is going to be terribly boring come the other end of the year. We're all going to be right. We're all going to be wrong. But, you know, this this time with my picks, my New Year's resolution was just go with the strength. Don't even bother hanging yourself out to dry because you just get pilloried for all the all year. Oh, you've lost again. Oh, you're down <laughs> the bottom again. So, no, I'll just stick with the, with the strength here. But we sure, Brian, we just can't get the Brian brothers just to have one more. One more tournament, one more farewell, because it didn't quite pan out the way we'd all wanted it to last year. Any chance that maybe just just one so we could say goodbye properly? Doesn't seem like it. Um, Maybe if there's fans at the U.S. Open, they come and and turn up there so they can get the proper goodbye in New York. Uh, Once they made that announcement, there were no fans. They decided just to, to call it immediately because what's the point of doing this farewell tour when there's nobody to say goodbye to? Uh, they closed pretty strong, though. They won that title at Delray. They won their uh, Davis Cup match together for the last time. So if, if that's it, which it seems to be, that's a, a good way to go out. Can I just tell you that the Bryan brothers have had their say on who they think is going to be year a number one doubles pairings, and, and they don't think it's the the pair that we've gone for in Pavic and Mektic. And I should say the others that work for the Olympics are Cabal and Farah and Kravitz and Mies. Uh Mike Bryan has gone for Ram and Salisbury. And Bob has gone for Cabal and Farah. So we have not gone with the Bryan brothers. We should have gone with the Bryan brothers. And new partnerships out there, Kubot and Kulhoff, Melo and Roger. And you mentioned Chris Murray and Suarez. They're new, but they're sort of second time round. And our defending time capsule champion, Arvin Palmer, has gone for Murray and Suarez. Next is the breakthrough. I don't know how any of you guys work this out, but I suddenly scour down the rankings from 100 and below, look for a name that stands out, and that tends to be where I land. So, Brian, where did you land on breakthrough place? So this is coming from outside the top 100 and having climbed the most places by the time we open the time capsule. So I usually look at somebody who hasn't played a lot and has a lot of kind of easy points to gain. So last year I went with J.J. Wolf and I was close. I didn't get it. So this year I went with Sebastian Corda of the United States, who I'm assuming is a popular pick here. Uh, he's 119. As we sit here, he is making a nice run in Delray Beach. Uh, he's into the final at Delray Beach as we record this on Wednesday. So I, I think in, well into the top 100 is very likely for Corda, who is 
an up-and-coming player, but is a little bit on the older side when you consider an up-and-coming player. He's going to turn 21 in the middle of the summer. They, they took a pretty conservative approach to his tennis. Of course, his father, uh, a former Australian Open champion, his sisters are professional golfers, so it's a sporting family. Uh, they, they took a more measured approach to things. He's my pick. And Chris, I thought it was interesting that Corda elected to go to Delray Beach rather than to qualifying in Doha for the Australian Open. Yeah, and that's a good sign, I think, because, I mean, I I haven't gone. For me, it was a uh, a choice between Corda and Alcaraz. And um, I've gone for Alcaraz because I think he's just, because he's 30 ranking places lower, he's got more space to make up. And therefore, you know, he, he could uh, go more spots. But I could have gone for Sebi Corda. I just think that Sebi has, um, he's, he's a very laid back personality. And I just think he's, it's going to take him a little bit longer. And having had a really good year last year, I think he may have a little bit of a setback this year and then he'll come back strong next year. I think that's the nature of uh, a lot of the younger players these days. And I see it happening with him. But I think it's a very good choice that he has chosen not to go for the glory tournament, but just to, you know, to do the, the donkey work of building himself up um, as, a, as a player, both physically and in terms of experience. And Peter, who's your, who's your breakthrough player? Aslan Kratsev, qualified for the Australian Open uh, overnight, uh, had a magnificent run on the what was the left of the Challenger Tour in, in 2020, made a huge jump up the ranking, so he's in the, the, the low hundreds at the moment, or you know closer to 100 than, than 200, has qualified in there. Yes, he's not a young, I guess he's not a young player, but he is part of the, the Russian team, the Russian family of players, and boy, what a success they've had in recent times. If he can latch on and hang out with some of those guys and, and train with them, play with them, he's going to have a particularly good year. Remember, it's only one year we're talking about for this time capsule, not three or four, like we're potentially with quarter. So here we go. I'm going to get on board and I'm just going to have this all to myself. Weren't you just saying you're not going to go out on a limb anymore, that you're, you've stopped that for 2021? <laughs> Brian, I'm not. I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb with this. He knows nothing else. Well, I'm terribly yeah, sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> just trying to keep things a little bit, little bit interesting. Well, let's all go for quarter then. Well, I've got, a, you... fly, I've got a flyer later in the uh, in the capsule. I was going to say, you two be nice. You've got to spend an awful lot of time together once Chris gets out of his hotel room in Australia. I need him to bring me things while I'm in quarantine. Oh. So, yes, well, you can... better be very nice. <laughs> the only thing I bring you is photos from the beach, Chris. That's what I'm bringing you. It's great to see you going out on a flyer with uh, <laughs> the breakthrough player. Now, the time capsule is made up of all our colleagues from ATP Tennis Radio, the World Feed, those involved with ATP Tennis Radio at some level have submitted their predictions for the breakthrough play. We also had a few Lorenzo Massettis. He's been doing a few um, fashion shoots in his off-season. Carlos Alcaraz gets the nod in there as well. And Mike Cation, who sees a lot of these players come through on the challenges. He, we should have looked at this. He's gone for Chun Sin Seng from Taipei. Right, moving on to the next-gen winner. You won't be surprised that in terms of the breakthrough player, there's a fair few of these names replicated within us. So for breakthrough, I went Corder. For next-gen winner, I went Corder. How is this all? Are there any Corders out there? Any any Corders for next-gen winner? Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm on my own here. Right, Chris, you are shaking your head vigorously. Well, I'm going for another Italian. After Zinna won it in uh, 2019, didn't happen in 2020, I'm going for Musetti in 2021. I actually think actually the home advantage could be very very important and Italy's you know got 
both um, Milan and Turin. The ATP uh, uh, finals are, you know, the full tour finals, the Nito finals are in uh, Turin. So these neighboring northern Italian cities, it's going to be great. And I think Musetti is good enough to ride the crest of that wave. I don't think he's consistent enough to get that far up at the top 100. That's why I didn't go for him in my um, breakthrough player. But I think given a specific week, given all the right atmosphere, I think he will rise to that occasion. Uh, Gigi, I should say I also picked Corda. I had to check because I was mixing up my <laughs> first, first time winner, next gen winner. But what I was saying about how he's a little bit older as far as these next gen players, he's right at the cusp of the eligibility. I think that maybe maturity helps him get through in Milan. And Peter? Alcaraz. Fine. This is this is shaping up to be a really, really nice story. So I think, does Sinner still qualify? I think, is Sinner still qualifying at the end of this year? Yes. But I don't think he'll play. Yeah. I, I he mean, you've got to also factor in the, the amount of tennis that these guys are going to play. I think Alcaraz will play next year. I mean, if he's fit and firing and all that, and the tournament happens. Um, but, yeah, some of these other players who might, make the big strides. I mean, Sinner's on the way there too. Probably may choose to say, look, thanks, but no thanks, and, and, and not choose to play the event just to rest their bodies for the next year. Or, you know, the, like, you know, remember, off chance that they make the top eight, the Nito ATP finals, or their alternates or something like that. And we have that question a little bit later as to which eight players will make it. Now, if you win the time capsule, and only Arvin Palmer wins the time capsule, you get to put a question in for the next year. So just we've got a run of Arv's questions coming up here. The first one, this was his 2018 question when he won it. Who will win the most tour titles up to the end of the Paris Masters? So Grand Slams, Masters, 500s and 250s. Remembering Andre Rublev have got five last year, three 500s and two 250s. Djokovic Four in 2020. There's a fair, there's a fair few Djokovic's in this answer. I personally have gone Medvedev for this one. I don't know how popular that is. Oh, Brian is another Medvedev. Oh, Peter's another Medvedev. Chris, can we have a full house? No, I've gone consistency. If I say that team could end up as world number one at the end of the year without winning a slam, I think he's going to win a lot of tournaments, Master Series 500 to 250. So I think team is going to win more tournaments than anyone else. But it, it, it depends is... on the cal- how many tournaments he's actually going to play. I remember a couple of years ago, he had a really big start to uh, a year where he just played almost every single week and then backed it off. I think they're, the team now have worked out that in order to, you know, to get through the gruelling Roland Garros to make sure he's fit and firing for that towards the back end of the year too, that they're going to be a bit more, I guess, there'll be a few more decisions made in terms of what the calendar is actually going to look like. And I think there'll be more breaks inserted in there than what there has been in the past. I think you're right, but I think he's actually moved into a different class since he won the US Open. I actually think it was obvious, even in the matches he lost, he believes now. He believes he's right up there. And I think when he plays a tour event, he will believe he can win it. And his personality is, you know, he doesn't give anything less than 100% because I don't think he knows how to. This is my favorite question because you have to work out that balance of who's going to win and who's going to play enough. Um, So I, I thought of Medvedev for that answer because he's going to play a lot of tennis, and he's a top five player in the world. This is one of those questions where I saw somebody else's choice and I regret it because I really like Lucy All's answer of Alex D. Menor, who already has a title. Um, he is consistent. He really wa- he's been very vocal about how much he wants to get 2020 behind him. Remember, he got hurt early in the Australian summer last year. 
missed the Australian Open, then the pandemic. So the year never got off the ground. I think he's a guy who's going to play a ton of tennis. He'll win enough events that I really like his chances. But my pick is Daniil Medvedev. And I should say that Simon Cambers, as Peter Mangado shakes his head at the de Menor suggestion that Lucian, we should say she did pick it before he got that Antalya title. But Simon Cambers has got Nadal, so he's probably assuming there's going to be a full clay season and Nadal's just going to sweep up. To be, to be fair, I wasn't shaking my head at the... It was just Brian's indecision of, of not pushing the boat out there and actually having it go. Come on! <laughs> come on, Brian! Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a weak one by me. <laughs> right. Moving on to Arv's. Let's see if this is a strong one from Brian. This is Arv's 2019 winning question that he put in for the next year. Who will win the men's singles gold in Tokyo? Brian, who have you gone for? And is Peter going to approve, more importantly? I went with the same pick I made last year. I'm now, I'll be happy. I, I hope there is a singles gold medal because I hope there is an Olympics and we're at that point. I went with the same player. I went with Stefano Tsitsipas. Um, I think. That kind of event is something he gets up for. I think the whole international flavor, it's obviously going to be very different if, if the Olympics do go forward. I think I made this pick on the heels of him winning the ATP finals two years ago. So maybe I was trying to ride the hot hand, but I'll stick with it. Peter, you approve? Uh, yes. Oh, well, well done. That's, uh, that's actually a very nice, very nice selection by you, Brian. I do approve. <laughs> I haven't gone with that, though. I've actually gone for Roger Federer. And I think because we've, a lot of the talk over the last couple of years has been about Rogers' motivations for playing on. We know he loves the sport. We know he, he enjoys it and all that sort of stuff. But he set his schedule a particular way. So, you know, more often than not, not playing on clay at Roland Garros to make sure that he's right for Wimbledon and, and practising there. Um, you know, skipping events as he goes along, picking and choosing what he plays. But one of the things that he has talked about has been the Olympics and, and the Olympics being various markers. I mean, we sort of talked about the Rio games and that being, okay, he's playing that one and then that'll be it after that. Well, no, he's just continued on and hopefully continues after that. But certainly one of the goals has been to um, set himself for the Olympics. I think the fact that he's not coming to Australia and starting the season sort of Dubai time, February, uh, March time, um, probably won't play on clay this year, get through the grass court season and then set himself for that. He's got the preparation time. He'll set himself for that. And he's a good chance, I think. That would be quite the 40th birthday present. Yes, it would, because I think the, the gold medal match is a couple of days before his 40th birthday. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm afraid I sort of share Brian's slight pessimism. I think the most likely outcome is there won't be a, a Olympics. I think it's one of the few tournaments that you can't actually run without fans. And Japan is in a terrible state at the moment with the pandemic. Uh, these things can change quickly. And I really hope it does because uh, they put so much effort into those Olympics. I really hope they happen. But I just can't see the Olympics happening without at least 50% spectators. It just would feel so unolympic. If it does happen... I've, I, I was drawn to the Russians simply because I think the Russian sporting psyche is such that um, the Olympics is bigger for the Russians than it is for most other nationalities in the tennis world. And I actually think that uh, I remember talking to the Woodies about, you know, they'd won I think five or six Grand Slam titles before they won the gold medal in Atlanta. And they said it just took them to a new level. And that's already there. They were surprised about that. But in Russia, if you win an Olympic gold medal, you are so high up in the pecking order. 
and I just had to go whether whether it was Medvedev or Rublev. I don't think Hachanov's going to be up there this year. Um, and I've gone for Medvedev. And I know people will say, well, how can it be patriotic when anyone who plays who is Russian can't play under the Russian flag because of the uh, the doping business? I actually think that that will not dampen the patriotism. And if anything, I think that the Russian players who are allowed to play, even as independent athletes, will still want to have that boost of having won an Olympic gold. I think I made a mistake on this one. I think I think I went Hart instead of... I went with Federer. I thought it'd be a beautiful finale to his career and there we go. But the ridiculous thing is, for the last two years leading up to what would have been Tokyo 2020, I kept talking about Nishikuri. I kept saying this is what his whole life's been about. They're going to wrap him up in cotton wool. They No one's going to go near that man. He's going to be put in a cupboard and he's going to be brought out for Tokyo because I know Naomi Osaka is enormous, but Kei Nishikuri, he can't live in Tokyo because of his fame. He has to go out in disguise. You know, he's on noodles, he's on aeroplanes, he's on watches, he's on everything. This, I mean, this must be what his life has been building up to. And you could say, well, therefore, probably the pressure's going to get to him. But I kept thinking, this is going to be his moment. Nishikuri is going to win gold. And then for some reason, the time capsule, I put Fed. You know what? Either one of those, if it does happen. And what about Del Potro somehow getting back? Or what about Murray? Or there can be lots of shaking heads. But, you know, the Olympics is, is one for fairy tales as well, isn't it? It's one for dreams coming true. And But then again, there might not be one. So so essentially what you're saying here is you've got the get out of jail free when we get to the other end of the year and I'm sitting there and you're going, well, actually, I picked the other one. It's like, oh, well, we'll have to go back to the tape. You're just going to make overcomplicating it, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. Are you having a go at me, Nurse? You've had a go at Chris. You've had a go at Brian. Now, can we just say, Peace Not is in Melbourne. It's early. He has just had his breakfast. He's only just lifted up his blinds. So it's 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 just early morning for you, Peter. It is early morning. I've got the initials PM for a reason, Gigi. And he's a lovely chap. And Who, Peter? Peter. And his, his, his knowledge of how much I love 70% dark chocolate is one of the things that really makes him just a great guy. Well, you better he hope room service fun. provides it. He could have some fun with you, Chris. If they have to check everything that's delivered to your room, he could he could bring you all sorts, couldn't he? I mean, I'll bring you the file that. in the cake so you can break out. <laughs> We're going redemption. redemption. <laughs> I'm <only> two weeks. <laughs> We're going through the ATP Tennis Radio time capsule. It will be opened in Turin, and hopefully, we'll have more of a sense of normality by the end of this year. We do have another Arvin Palmer question because he keeps winning it. This was his winning question from this year. Which player will win their first tour title? So if, if say, there are six people who win like they were last year who win their first title, you just need one of them and you get that point. And this is another one where I could actually give you two answers because I wrote down Corder. And as we speak, as Brian mentioned, he's in the final at Delroy Peach. But I said, I can't. I've already got him for two. I can't have him. So I took him out. Actually, as we sit here, he has now lost that final to Hubert Hercatch. Oh, I feel so better. I... These Corda people have to continue to wait. Okay, because there's an awful lot of people that have gone with Seb Corda. I personally went for Felix Ogelia-Sima. My thinking behind this was he is now lost in, what, six finals. He's been getting to those finals. He's been getting to that last match. He is good enough. He is supremely talented. He is going to cross that finish line at some stage. And I believe it will be in 2021. Well, this is the one I'm taking a flyer on. Um, Ooh, I, settle down, strap I'm yourselves going, in, folks. <laughs> I'm going to go for a guy who severely impressed me at Roland Garros. It's always possible that there's a, you know, a one-tournament wonder, but um, Daniel Altmaier got to the fourth round at Roland Garros. Looks to me like he's got a really good clay court game, and I can see him picking up one of the lower-ranking clay court tournaments. So I'm going to take a flyer on him. 
I went with uh, Carlos Alcaraz, uh, who we, we spoke about earlier, the young, young guy from Spain who just qualified uh, for the Australian Open. You hear a lot of youngest since Nadal, youngest since X. So there's, there's certainly high expectations for him. I also want to highlight another player from Spain. I want to highlight our hardworking producer, Russell. I like his pick in this category as well. Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who's got a, a fun game to watch. He's got a, a personality on the court. I, I like that pick. I, I'm, I'm, I feel better with my pick, but I, I like that selection by Russell. <laughs> so you don't like it that much is what no, you're saying. <laughs> no, but it, I applaud Russell for making the pick. Let, let me just run through, before we get Peter's some other interesting picks from people. We have got Jan Leonard Struff, that's from Seb Lozier. Um, Alexander Bublik, that's from World Feed commentator Lee Goodall. Dan Evans is the choice of Mikey Pereira. You can hear radio and TV together with Naomi Cavaday. Uh, producer Alex has gone from Cameron Norrie, got to the semifinals in Delray. And as you mentioned, the Alejandro Davidovich Fakina from Russell. So, Peter, where have you landed on this one and why? Boringly, FAA all the way for me in 2021. No, I feel better that someone else... I think there's been a couple who have... I actually had my producer like wrote some notes and he was like, reasons why FAA won't win his first title this year. I thought, hang on a second. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't his choice, was it? Right, question number eight. Singles champion each of the Grand Slams. I will just get mine out there now. Djokovic, Nadal, Djokovic... Medvedev. So I haven't really gone out on a limb. I haven't taken a lot of risks. I do believe the old guard will snap up 75% of them. Can I just say, though, that this seems to be a question that each year that we've done this time capsule, how many years have we done it? Three, four, four years now? Um, this is the fourth, yeah. Yeah, that by the time we... There's only four names to choose from, but by the time we get to the fourth, it just becomes a real mixed bag. Why is it that the US Open doesn't afford itself someone to have some semblance of incumbency? It's just like, ah, oh, let's just throw the darts up in the air and we'll have a go at it. <laughs> it feels like it's the only one, Chris. I don't know what you think. I feel like it's the only one where you can take a bit of a punt on. I just feel Roland Garros, there's... there's Two names in the hat, but the way he played to win the title a few months back, Nadal for me, definitely. Djokovic, his dominance in Australia over the years. And then at Wimbledon, your 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 pool to select from is naturally going to be smaller. So you get to the hard courts of the US Open, you think, yeah, maybe we can maybe we can take a little punt on this one. Yeah, not everyone would have tipped a team um Sverev final last year. I mean, first Grand Slam uh final for Sverev, um first um, title for team so I think it's reasonable also by that stage of the year people are getting a bit tired assuming I mean this year was a funny one because we had that five uh, for last year we had the five months off but by and large I think that's why I think people feel able to take a flyer and that's the one I've taken the flyer on actually I've gone for Djokovic at the Australian I think team is ready to win the French now I also having sat in the stadium and watching Nadal take Djokovic apart in uh, last year's Roland Garros I thought this is a level which he can only come down from. It was just, it was almost perfection. And I think he will come down from that. I mean, we've been saying this for years and it hasn't happened yet, but it'll be 35 by then. And I just think team is ready to take it. I think he believes also. I'm taking a, a punt on Federer. This is perhaps a sentimental one to win Wimbledon, but I think this is the one now, the only one he can now win is Wimbledon, because I think he can win all his matches up to the semifinals in under two hours, which I think is now essential for Federer. And then um, uh, for the U.S. Open, I've gone for Rublev. 
Oh. Yes, please. Ooh. He's always done well there. Yeah, that would be brilliant. He's, he's always yeah. done well there, but he's got stuck at the quarterfinal stage. And I do believe it's a belief thing. And I think Fernando Vicente is a very, very smart mentor to him, as well as a coach. And I think once he can get him to break through there, I think the, the concrete type courts at the US Open really suit Rublev's game. And I think that that's the place where I can see Rublev making the breakthrough. So, so far, our US Open winners are both from Russia for Chris and I. Brian, how do you sit with the four winners? I went exactly the same as you, Gigi. I went with Djokovic, Nadal, Djokovic, and Medvedev at the US Open. Um, talking about how we just sort of throw darts at the wall to pick a US Open winner, I say this, it's amazing to me, and you notice every year, that Djokovic has only won the US Open, I say only, three times. I mean, that's a, a most players would trade their career for that, but the number of times he has come into this tournament as number one in the world or in the top three, and he's only won it three times is crazy. I mean, he's lost five finals at the US Open, so would he have won last year? Who knows, but last year, what happened, happened. Um, the one outside the box pick that I liked last year, it's funny, Chris, I actually picked team to win the French open last year. Then I went back to Nadal this year. Um, Simon Cambers, our buddy picked Shapovalov to win Wimbledon. I like that pick. I think that's asking a lot for somebody like Shapovalov to win two weeks at Wimbledon best of five set matches. If you ask me, is could he, is he going to win a major this year? I'll, I'll take that pick. But I think Wimbledon might be a bridge too far, but I like the uh, audacity shown by Simon. It's a year or two too early for him, I think. I think he's still working at his game, but he's got a game that'd be great for grass when he gets it all together. And Peter, you're, you're four winner. I mean, have you, have you thrown a dart at the US Open? Well, I said Sitsipas for the US. So Djokovic team, Djokovic, Sitsipas, if we're going, uh, if you want to just run through the four there. And maybe the euphoria from the Olympics around that particular time of the year being after Wimbledon and the back end of the year and, and preparing and all of that sort of stuff potentially could sweep through and it could just be a, a bit of a, a run that he has um, since the past in that particular part of the year. And the other thing too to consider that that's different to previous years has been the, the fact that Pretty much every player is fit, firing. There hasn't been too much downtime required for, for players to rest up with injury and stuff like that. So a lot of players would be training a lot of hours to give themselves enough petrol in the tank to be able to get through the, the back end of the year because you can have a flying start. But the main thing is to make sure that you've got the fitness base so that you can be performing just as well at the Australian Open as what you would be sort of in Paris, the Paris Masters time. And that... Sitsipas is one of those players. Our colleague Nick Lester's gone for, he's gone for sort of the usual suspects in terms of Nadal, Djokovic and team. He's gone for Zverev, Sasha Zverev at the Australian Open. Um, they, I don't know whether he did that before or after it was confirmed that David Freire, they're not going to be working together anymore. How much that will change things, I don't know, but he's gone for Zverev. Miles McLagan has got Djokovic taking three and Nadal taking one, which would mean that Nadal would be out on his own in terms of Grand Slams one and Djokovic would equal Federer. It's all. It could possibly get very interesting in 2021 if we have these tournaments. Right. Final question of the time capsule before the pieces of paper are filed in that really small box that Peter has. Which eight singles players will make the 2021 Nito ATP finals in Turin? I'll just rattle off my eight. Medvedev, Djokovic, Team, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Nadal, Zverev. And I think I got carried away with the Felix thing. So I've got Felix making it to Turin. Chris, your your eight. Any shocks? 
Um, yeah, there's one. Um, I basically went for Djokovic and Nadal team. I think everyone will go for those three. Having picked Federer and Rublev to win majors, I had to put those in there. I think Medvedev and Tsitsipas will also be consistent. So there's seven. Now, the obvious pick for my eighth would have been Zverev. I have a feeling Zverev's going to have a downer this year. Um, and I think that Raonic is going to have a good year. So I'm going to go for Raonic as my eighth player. I like that, Chris. He had a nice finish to 2020. He seemed healthy. He seems like he's in a good place. I like that. I also picked a Canadian to make it to the last eight, but it's not Felix and it's not Raonic. I had that that same body of seven as everybody else with Djokovic, Nadal, Teens, Varev, Medvedev, Rublev, Tsitsipas. And then I went Shapovalov. Like I said, maybe he wins a Masters this year. Maybe he gets hot, goes on a couple runs. I think he can can get there. The other name that I'm going to throw out here, I didn't put him down because I wasn't going that far out on a limb. But if there's a an American player who can get there or get close, I think Taylor Fritz is in for a big climb, knock, not into the top 10, but knocking on the door. I mean, he's got the best all-court game of any of the Americans. You know, Riley Opelka might be the best suited to win a major, mainly because of the weapon he has. But in terms of being a, a, a well-rounded tennis player, Fritz is the best one. He's making solid strides in that direction. He likes, he has a pretty high bit of self belief. So I think he could put himself into the conversation. Peter. So, yes, all the usual suspects Djokovic, Nadal, team, Rublev, Medvedev, Sitsipas. I went with Shabavalov too. And then for my eighth one, I went with Yannick Sinner. I thought we might as well just get his ATP tennis radio zone, just throw him in there. And of course, with, uh, our man, uh, dashing Diego Schwartzman as our alternate. So I'm just picking favourite players at this stage. There's no real rhyme <laughs> or reason. But if you chart the development and it continues on through the year, particularly if there are truncations that happen um, throughout the year, um, who are the players who are going to be the most resilient to that, I guess, and the most adaptable to that? And Sin has shown that he can take most things that are thrown at him at this stage. And I would look forward to seeing him in Turin, and certainly that would keep the turnstiles clicking over in that part of the world, should he make it in that uh, time of the year. Yeah, a couple of other people, including Marcus Buckland, have gone for Senna. We should pay attention to the champion, Arvin Palmer, because he got the most right in this category last year than probably the year before. And it was the deciding factor in terms of who won the naked, golden, nappy wearing, so not quite naked, Cherubis now lost. He has gone for Team, Medvedev, Nadal, Djokovic, Zverev, Setsapas, Rublev and Shapovalov. So there we go. And there's just a little fist bumping there from Brian because Shapovalov is the one in there. So now all those pieces of paper, Peter, you're going to stick them in your little box if you can. You might have to tread on it like a suitcase that's bursting. You have to stand on it and sit in it. You're going to secure that and that will next be seen with us, hopefully when we're together for the tour finals. Oh, I hope so. I wanted to, even if I just deliver it and go, I'm more than happy to do that too, just to get out of the country. That'll be, that'll be <laughs> nice at some stage, but no. Your secrets are safe with me because I pretty much forget who everyone picked by the time this podcast is finished. These these are strange times. It's so nice to be with you all. Now, Chris, remind us about AO Radio and when and how we can hear that during the Open. I mean, the Australian Open is from the 8th to the 21st of February and uh, AO Radio will be on 15 minutes before the start of play. So play is scheduled to start at 11 o'clock on uh, Monday the 8th and we'll be on at uh, 10.45 and we will have um, all the matches from the Rod Laver Arena and between the day and night sessions, we'll have 
a couple of matches that are still in progress from elsewhere. We'll have a roundup of the day's action in our Twilight show, which is the half hour leading up to the start of the night session, which is seven o'clock in week one. And at some stage in week two, it shifts to 7.30. And um, basically all the main matches on Rod Laver Arena will have it. And people can um, contact the commentators, be part of it, be part of the discussions. And hopefully we'll just have a great time. We should point out too that the, where ATP Radio is taking AO Radio, but taking the whole lot, so all the men's and the women's matches. So we, we simulcast whatever output, whatever we're broadcasting at the time. We uh, we will be taking that on ATP Tennis Radio as well. And just to drop in at this stage, it's my fifteenth year on AO Radio. So very much looking forward to it, and uh, it's going to be completely different to what we've had in the past. It's only going to be your 15th year if you deliver nice things to Chris and his hotel during quarantine who might end at 14. Well, yes. Well, if that's going to be the case, I might just... There's a few calls I can make to people at the immigration department. I'm sure we could we could fix that, couldn't we, Chris? Oh, that's 70% dark chocolate. Really is very nice, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, we now all know what Chris likes. Now, Brian, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, I, my working day is going to start at 4am every day covering from the UK. How social or antisocial are the hours? New York to Australia. So my other work that I do outside of tennis is, is has pretty antisocial hours. So I'm actually able to follow a, a fair bit of it. Um, but usually you're able to watch. It's I think it starts at about seven o'clock New York time p.m. So in, up until you want to go to bed, you can watch five six hours of tennis, depending on how late you want to stay up, or you can wake up extremely early sometimes, and the matches are still finishing. Like last year, I know Federer Sandgren that was finishing late um, or early in the morning with a late finish. So it's easy enough to follow. Brian, it's been a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast. Chris, really safe flight over there. Enjoy quarantine. Keep yourself busy. Peter, look after him. Deliver him nice things. Enjoy a busy Australian tennis summer. And Peter and Chris are going to be looking after podcast duties, gosh, I think for the next sort of five or six weeks. So I hope they're still going to be talking by the end of it. But gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to be with you all. Stop shaking your head, Peter. And let's just now enjoy the tennis. You can hear it, as you heard, the Australian Open rebroadcasting via ATP Tennis Radio. So thank you very much for listening and enjoy the tennis. Enjoy the tennis.